What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another brand new episode of James Baldwin's America. I am your host, Jesse James. Truth and full disclosure here, it is approximately 1.15 Monday morning, August 24th, as I record this. And the reason why I'm recording so late is because Sunday night, two stories broke that I just, I couldn't ignore. And... I just had to talk about them, so I scrapped my original introduction for this week's show, and I'm now recording this one. A black man by the name of Jacob Blake was shot in the back approximately seven times by police officers in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Sunday night. Kenosha is a city south of Milwaukee, and... The police were called for a domestic dispute, and when they arrived, Mr. Blake had actually broken the dispute up, and he proceeded to walk around the front of his car, and as he was trying to get in the driver's seat of his car, he was shot in the back seven times by Kenosha police officers, all the while while three of his children were sitting in the back seat. Now, at the time I'm recording this, Mr. Blake has undergone surgery. It appears that he will hopefully, God willing, recover. But, as you can imagine, there are protests going on at this moment in Kenosha and in Milwaukee. And I imagine that they will continue throughout the week this sort of violence against black folks in the Milwaukee area is nothing new. It's been happening for years. It's been a hotly contested and debated issue there for a long time. If these actions don't enrage you, I honestly, I don't know what to tell you. And I thought we had reached the tipping point in this country when George Floyd was murdered. But obviously that's not the case. Because the cops that killed Breonna Taylor are still free. The cops that shot Jacob Blake, obviously this is way early in the process, but nothing has been done to these officers. But when will white folks in this country finally, once and for all, wake up and realize that enough is enough? Be done with this violence, this unnecessary, unprovoked violence towards black men, women, and children in this country. And that leads me into the other story that made big news tonight and that was by journalist Jamel Hill in which she compared this country to Nazi Germany and I saw on Twitter that just set off an absolute ridiculous line of tweets from right wingers but here's the thing she's not wrong she wasn't wrong Four years ago, when she stood up and defended Colin Kaepernick, 
she wasn't wrong four years ago when she was one of the first people in the public light to stand up and call Donald Trump a racist. And she's not wrong about comparing the way this country is right now to Nazi Germany. And if that offends you, I'm sorry, but as much as I love this podcast, I don't need you listening to me. Because obviously we are on two completely different wavelengths here. I'm angry. I am just so sick and tired of the violence towards black folks in this country. And every time it happens, I think about my black friends and my black godson. I'm wondering, am I going to have to deal with losing one of them at some point? And it's not so far-fetched to think that I will. And that drives me absolutely insane. Just because you may not have black friends doesn't mean that what's happening shouldn't drive you nuts because it should. Because until every single person in this country, regardless of age, sex, race, sexual orientation, or any other qualifier you want to put up, until every one of us is free and equal, none of us are free and equal. Okay, deep breath, that rant's over with. Moving on. Really excited and happy that I had time to sit down and talk with my friend and mentor, Ed Pavlik from the University of Georgia. Spent well over an hour with him, and not only will I be talking with him this week, but we'll have the second half of the interview next week. But in this first part today, we talk about his favorite Baldwin work. We explore Baldwin's perhaps greatest work just above my head. We discuss Ed's own personal identity and how Baldwin helped him figure out his own identity. And then we look at the relationship between James Baldwin, Jimmy Baldwin, and his family, and how the relationships interact with with one another, and how they protected one another in life, but also in death. Right after this, we'll get to the interview with Dr. Ed Pavlik. All right, I am very happy and blessed to be joined today by not only a friend, but a mentor as well. He is the Distinguished Research Professor of English, African American Studies, and Creative Writing at the University of Georgia. Joined today by Dr. Ed Pavlik. Ed, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, it's great. It's great to be here. Good to see you. What is your favorite piece of work by James Baldwin and why? I believe we'll start off with the impossible question. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, man, you know, that, that's obviously, I can't answer that question, but I, I can answer it this way. 
Um, the first uh, James Baldwin pieces I ever read, the first I'd ever heard of James Baldwin was a, a girlfriend of mine when we were in high school. I was a senior in high school. And somehow she must have got a hold of, through her family, a, a advanced copy of um, The Price of the Ticket. And she gave it to me because all kinds of things were going on. And, and, I, and I, I remember I was just writing about this. In fact, I, in fact, I still have the book right here. Um, I, I turned to the table because it's a huge book. I was like, there's no way I can read this whole book. So I turned to the table of contents. And I was like, let me look for something like relevant to my troubles. And the first thing I saw that, that kind of signaled something in my 17-year-old brain was the essay Color. It's a 1962 essay. And in it, and I was like, well, color, okay, that, that seems like a right, right on the topic, you know. And so, um, you know, I, I've talked about this a little bit before somewhere or other maybe, um, but I, I read that essay, and I wasn't a reader at the time, you know, but I, I read that essay over and over again. And at the time, it, it, it struck me as like the only proof I'd ever encountered uh, that the things that were going on around me a racial uh, uh, misunderstandings, tensions, violence, um, the disparate treatment and reaction and experience of people who are ostensibly occupying the same space as each other. How is all that happening? You know, um, this, that Baldwin essay color was the first, like I say, evidence that I ever had, one, that what I was feeling and, and experiencing was real. Mm-hmm. And two, really, it was my first experience really reading at all in, in, a, in a way that was not an assignment and not a, not a pastime, not a magazine. This was, this was something that was at the core of what felt necessary to me, you know, at the very core of it. Right. And, and I remember the feeling of just shock and disbelief and thanks and awe that these things that... I had been carrying around and fumbling around trying to talk about and just act out about as a kid were actually on paper in this book, you know, and, and, and also, of course, with such clarity, you know, that me even as a teenager, given the experiences I had, I could understand this stuff in very, very immediate and powerful ways. You know, um, sadly, that's not always the case with the things we read. But again, I don't think everything we need, everything we read doesn't need to be like at that burning core of necessity either. But that was my experience. And maybe, you know, for that reason, um, and it just so happened that the next essay in that book is called To Talk to Teachers. And, and I was in, in The Price of the Ticket. The, the essays are arranged in that way. And I was in you know, high school in battles with coaches and teachers, as well as other kids. And I was like, well, okay, color is one thing, you know, and our teachers, okay, this might be good too. So it was those two essays that, um, you know, that, that really took, free, took me from one place to another in a very, very, very profound and strange way. So right. I could say that. It, now, that, I got like a hundred favorite things. Oh, of course, everybody does. I mean, <laughs> it depends on the day or I what suppose, you do. You know, like, seriously feel. speaking, though, I think just above my head is legit my answer to that question. I think it's his greatest achievement in a book. Um, and so, you know, like if I had to throw my hat at one book, that would, that would be it. If I had one James Baldwin book to leave earth with, 
I would take just above my head. No, you are not the only person. You know, our friend Craig Werner's same answer, just above my head. And so many people that read that now, it holds such a special place to them. But at the time of the release, it was really harshly critiqued. What do you think has happened between then and now that it seems to be much more accepted and much more embraced as a seminal work for him? Well, I just think we grew up, you know. I think, you know, I think the things that he was, the, the hang-ups people had at the time that Baldwin wasn't really servicing in his work in favor of a deepening exploration of the, of the compulsions and obsessions he'd had all along. You know, I think people at the time just weren't able to get over themselves enough to see and follow what he was doing. And they had been so misled and in ways abused by the intersection of the marketplace and the culture, literary culture, et cetera, that I just don't think there were a lot of people in position to, you know, to, um, to get what he was doing there. You know, Baldwin was out of step with the, with many, many things in the mainstream at the time. Um, and that is absolutely true. And, um, you know, that's pretty much the way I, I make sense of that. You know, it is a strange book and it, there are all kinds of complexities in there, mm-hmm. which he's really not bothering to explain. And he's certainly not backing off of them. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, in general, man, I think that's true of a lot of Baldwin's work. Maybe, maybe in, in extreme ways, just above my head. But Devil Finds work the same. No name in the street the same. You know, Fire Next Time is different because Fire Next Time he was actively translating himself into the mainstream marketplace, moral marketplace, as well as commercial marketplace, literary marketplace, political market. You know, Baldwin was consciously translating himself at great pain and labor into that space. By the time the later works start to happen, he's not only not doing that, but he's kind of actively trying to torpedo that marketplace. And so, you know, it, it can't come as too much of a surprise that people in the ship of that marketplace aren't going to regard the torpedoes coming at it with great welcome and, right. and excitement. You know, yeah. they, will, they will greet them with alarm and suspicion and try to disarm them in any way they can, they can before they hit the ship. And if you think of the readership and reviewership of, of books like I just named, you know, later Baldwin, in that metaphor as people in the ship of the marketplace and, and, and Baldwin kind of launching torpedoes, if you kind of entertain that metaphor and reread some of that stuff that was said, that, that behavior they were, you know, the, the behavior you find and the things people were saying make perfect sense. Because that's exactly what you would do if you were in a ship that was, you know, this dude was trying to sink. Right. <laughs> but, you know, of course, at the same time, there's a raging contagion on that ship, which is going to kill you and spread off that ship into the world and do great damage. So, of course, in, in, a, in, in a deeper analysis, that behavior doesn't make sense. But based on the restricted, you know, rational position those people felt themselves in erroneously at the time, which Baldwin knew much better than. So even there is a kind of presentation of race in America, if you want as a riddle, as a conundrum, as an equation that doesn't add up, as a situation which is radically unstable. And that'll, because mostly what you get in terms of racial discourse and commentary and so forth 
in our in our marketplace culture frames all these issues as if they are in fact secure and stable structures that an expert on TV can speak to with authority and certainty you know mm-hmm. because if you're going to speak you're going to speak with authority and certainty you're going to have to have stable subject matter to talk about okay so Baldwin is um, is is very rare in the in the way that he was a part of the mainstream marketplace, but he wasn't ever really speaking in those same kind of you know with with stable certainties in mind when it came to all this business. So clearly, me growing up, I, you know, I, my my father's a Croatian immigrant to the United States through Canada. My mother's a white American liberal, born in born in Wisconsin and raised kind of in a nomadic way around the Midwest, including in Chicago where my parents met. And so like, you know, legally speaking, that makes me white. Um, But because of the immediate relationships around me as a kid, as well, maybe as something hardwired in me as well, as a child from the beginning, I was just never able to see it that way and feel it that way. As early as I can remember in my life, back to my early childhood, I can remember cues to behave in certain ways that I didn't know then, but I can look back on now as being kind of racially choreographed. And I can remember thinking, that ain't me. You know, um, all the white kids over here, all the boys over here, all the smart kids over here, all the white, all those cues to form lines and count off numbers. A lot of that was, of course, racially coded. Um, and I, I never felt like that stuff applied. Um, and the older I got, the more violently I felt, you know, about all, well, the more violent, the more violent I felt that kind of coding and cueing to be, the more false it was. And if other people thought it was fine, I think I was like, well, okay, it might be true for you or whatever. I don't know, but it ain't true for me. And that's the way it went. And, you know, and, and Baldwin was through the accident of our acquaintance through his work. He was a person who, you know, he understood that because he had come up that way too. Um, so, so yeah, so uh, that's part of it, you know, and s- still, and, you know, basically the idea is that, look, one's racial identity is not a genetic fact that accrues to you as a result of the of the uh, the legal racial status of your parents. This is not a medieval village where we follow in the line of our parents. My father was a cobbler, so I, you know he's an orthodox, so we stay with them. He's a cobbler. I'm going to be trained as a whatever. That's not the. I hope it's not news to people, but that's not the world we live in. You know, the modern world is has has uh, many things in it, uh, many well-documented things in it with discourses of incarceration and terror and abuse and everything. But it is also a place of open questions where tradition can't account for the reality of our lives. And, um, you know, I, I guess I, I figured if that's true of the modern world in all these ways, it, it must be true for, you know, in, in racial ways as well. And, and Baldwin, uh, there's a lot of his work that, that supports that kind of thought. And, uh, you know, he's not alone in that. But I think he was very rare at the times when he was doing it. And I think he is kind of unique in the ways he did that. Um, and like I say, you know, 
all through his work are, are passages and paragraphs and characters where I, f- I felt a certain guidance, a certain support, a certain encouragement, also warnings, you know, even admonishments. But all that kind of, I felt addressed in ways, unlike when we were being told to count off our, our place in the line in whatever school. In Baldwin's work, I felt, I felt addressed in ways that weren't arbitrary and abusive. You know? Uh, yeah. 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 And I have to say, like, if you, if you take, the, the, you know, the core complexities of what Baldwin figured were the wiring of, of a human life, you take those things seriously, you're going to battle out there. Because the world doesn't think it's working in those ways. For many reasons I started out with in terms of the, the power and the need for stable, secure, discrete discourses, including identities, mm-hmm. which, are, which, are, which are saleable and replicable and teachable and all those abuls. What they are not is livable. You know, and Baldwin, Baldwin, he moves through that territory in very, very, very important and powerful ways. Let's continue. Is that, is that helpful, man? Absolutely. Um, let's continue with the idea of identity. And, you know, most of the world knows Baldwin only as James or Jimmy uh-huh. through his writing or through song or whatever it might be. But you found Baldwin's identity was much more complex than that. Can you explain the quote-unquote other Baldwins and how that enabled him to process his life and his place in life and the work that he was trying to accomplish? Well, sure. I mean, yes. Um, of course, as you know, Jesse, this, this all comes from... Um, I found myself about 10 years ago working... In a, in a kind of friendship and also a collaboration with, with Baldwin's um, uh, sister, Gloria, who was in control of his estate in certain ways. At least she was under in stewardship of his estate in certain ways. And she was very, very close to him during his life and worked with him and traveled with him and, and knew him very well. Very well. Am- among his brothers and sisters, uh, his youngest brother, David and Gloria, were the two that I think are were closest to Baldwin in, in his life. Um, so... Working and knowing her, I was, um, I don't know, given access to, and I, I began to do some work with private uh, materials of his, among which were all the letters, a big, tall stack of letters over many, many years that he wrote to his brother, David. And I, I wrote a, a book basically retelling Baldwin's career as told to his brother, David, in those letters. And yes, um, what I found was that it's a, it's a, it's a very different picture of who and what James, who James Baldwin was, how he was, how it was to be who he was. And um, it was a very different picture of all that in these letters than I had ever known before. And, you know, by then, I, by, by 10 years ago, I had read it all, uh, including pretty much all the scholarship of note on Baldwin. And, and having read and reread and listened and watched all the videos and all that, I remember my first encounters with those letters to his brother, when I was reading them thinking, God, I don't feel like I've ever met this guy. Like, who is this guy? You know? And I went on, on with that and, you know, a third of the way into it or something, I realized, I should have realized this right away probably, but there were so many things going on 
that he's signing all these letters, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, um, not Jimmy or James, but, but almost all of the letters to his brother, David, were signed Jamie. And it, and it finally, it struck me at some point along the line, along the way, that, wow, you know, maybe my sense of the newness of my acquaintance with this, this person it has its own name. I mean, he's writing it right there on the paper. Um, and so I thought to myself, you know, what's that about? He was writing his brother, you know, and this is a private thing. These aren't versions of himself that he's sharing with the world, either in his work or in public on speeches and so forth. And in a way, they're not, they're not even versions of himself that he's sharing with friends, you know, out at night at dinners or even lovers or whatever. You know, this is a, a particular kind of private self that he's speaking as or from or whatever, you know. And I thought, yeah, that makes that makes great sense. This is this is this, Jamie is is the 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 part of James Baldwin's life that was lived in contact with his family, say. Um, and I had to think about like how how important and why that version of himself was so important to him, because um, clearly it was. Clearly he. I mean, he said publicly many times how much he loved his family and how, how he hoped they would be proud of him and how he didn't want to disappoint them and all that. But those were public proximate, pro- proclamations, you know. To read the actual um, address, you know, to, to read the actual language of his, at least, relationship in writing with his brother, because that would have been very different if you were hanging out with them, you know, at night together or whatever. But writing, as a writer, writing his brother, yeah, very, very different. Um, and then, of course... I think there was another dimension of his life and self that I encountered through those letters as well. I can describe that too, if you want, but basically what what the gist of it is that in order to do the work as a writer that James Baldwin was, he had to basically suspend, and he said this several times in various places, but he basically had to suspend all certainties, all givens, all relationships were up in the air. All definitions had to come up in the air again. And, you know, you figure them all out as they come back down. But, you know, um, that's one thing to say. It's a whole other thing to try to live your life where there really are no certainties. You know, uh, certain philosophers and anarchists and so forth may have tried it. They don't, they don't really <clears throat> resemble James Baldwin that much at all. Um, but he did keep a kind of radical openness afloat uh, throughout his life and work. But one of the things he he didn't kind of add to that world of shifts and open questions was, you know, his relationship to his family, which which he really regarded as kind of bedrock stability. And I think it gave him, whether it was true or not, is debatable and, and it's interesting to think about that and to, to, to kind of explore that. But for him, his sense of his duty to his family, his connection to his family was was absolutely immutable and was not really a part of the kind of radical bending and twisting and opening that most of his work and the rest of his life was really about. You know, the, the work he did in writing was open and the work he did as a speaker, po- political wise, as an activist really, was, was more kind of pointed and accusatory. You know, he was more like a prosecutor in action, um, in, 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 in history, and an open kind of philosopher of experience and music and everything in, in literary work but in his family a very very different you know uncle son brother um person so and you can see i think anybody can understand 
if you're operating with such great intensity as a prosecutor in history and as an explorer in, you know, the work you do as a writer, you're just going to need a place to go home, man. Right. Um, and even if you can't go home, you need to imagine a place where people are at home. And, and, and Baldwin's version of that imagined place and the place that he experienced had, had, had a great, great, great to deal, a great, great, great deal to do with his family. Yeah, all of them. Um, yes. So, so, and then, you know, and I, again, that's something that echoes out in the work. Then, you know, Sonny's Blues and, and you know, all kinds of uh, brother-sister and brother-brother and mother-son relationships in Baldwin's work, of course. Family is, it won't be a surprise to people that family is very important to the man. You know, Beale Street could talk. The real questions in his work, in some way, across a certain river or moat, from the imagined reality of his family until really just above my head. And I think one of the reasons for that work's greatness is that he, in that work, pulled up the partitions and he, he, he invited his family, both kind of physically really, but also in his imagination, into you know, the threshing floor, the place where the real... Um, motion and questions take place in the work that he did. He never really made them political fodder as much in his accusatory work in public, but just above my head brings his family into the creative space in a, in a, in a very, in an unprecedented way for him. And the results are stunning and powerful and also very scary and disturbing. If you look at it closely. Do you think that was something that he then consciously did to keep his family separate in order to have that, I guess, freedom to speak his truth and to bear witness. Because if he didn't put up that barrier between his family, I mean, we, we both know, and he had talked about like the sixties was just an awful time for him. He lost so many friends, whether it was murder or cancer or whatever. So to put up, you know, that personal barrier of my family's over here, that's off limits, that's untouchable. And because I keep them separate, I'm able to attack with such vigor and venom what I'm seeing, what America truly is. Yes, yes. Politically speaking, attack with venom and and vigor like that. Mm -hmm. And then also in my work, I'm able to go at these things in a wholly different way unobstructed by danger, questions, whatever. I can go for it because when it comes to my family, I know exactly who I am. I know exactly who they are. They know who I am. I know who they are, you know, and I can, uh, I can go back to that. Right. Again, you know, to the degree that's true and whatever, I'm not so sure, you know, that's, that's fascinating. But it's absolutely true that in his mind, things did operate. I mean, like, I think it's absolutely true that in his mind, things operated in that way. And and basically for these reasons. Yes. Yes. And also, you know, I mean, you know, he would just say, because I think this was a conscious thing and also an unconscious thing. I think a lot of this was unconscious, but I think it was conscious to the point where he would say, look, there's privacy in the world and my family's private. Even though Baldwin's work is radical about making private things public. Right. That was part that he did not behave in that way uh, in relation to. And now you, 
you kind of see the opposite of that now with his family being so very protective of his legacy. And I think, you know, you and I have had conversations about this in the past where they feel he was almost used and abused by the public. And right. And so now that he's gone, but he's still in such high demand and there's still so many people that, you know, want some of the access that you were allowed to have and want to dig deeper personally. And his family just is like, no, he's already given up himself. We want to have that privacy over him. At least I believe it's what for another generation yet before they'll release really most of his personal documents. At least that stuff I saw. Yeah. Yeah, that pretty much says it, you know, and, and given what I've just said about the fact that for most of his life, he kept that whole thing separate from his work. I, it makes sense that they would say, well, that's the way that's the way we, we dealt with it. You know, that's how we worked. And now we're going to we're going to do what we do. You know, um, yeah, I think that, that make I mean, not, that makes sense to me. Right. But um, Of course. On one hand, as you said, there is great demand for James Baldwin's work. There's even more than demand. There's, there's an incredible need out there for people to encounter him in the deepest ways possible. That's what I think. I think James Baldwin is a prophetic artist. And by prophetic, I mean an artist in which people see themselves. And an artist in which people can see parts of themselves visible, reachable, tangible in no other place. And so that, for that reason, I think there's a great need for contact with that prophetic, you know, mission that he had. And me personally, I'm committed to furthering that connection between people and, and, and James Baldwin's prophetic presence mm-hmm. in any way I can, you know, of course, trying to respect the will and needs of the family in the ways they, they demand to be respected rightly. Right. On the other hand, we, we, you know, we don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in a world where because something's prophetic, it gets treated in, in right and moral ways. We live in a marketplace. We live really in the shadow of auction blocks where people were hacked up into pieces and sold for profit. We still live in that place. This COVID shit is making that apparent all again. And so, again, you know, um, if, the fa- if Baldwin's family feels like they're a little reluctant to just throw up the, throw up in the doors, and, and let this world of sharks have at the most private reaches of their brother's life. That's not something I think should be a mystery to anybody. You know, anybody who's got any sane, any sanity is probably holding something back from this world. Most people are holding almost everything back from this world. Right. Yeah. And I have to say a lot of the people at the head of the March that are critical of the Baldwin family for their less than full hundred percent open access policies are people who, let's face it, haven't shared shit about themselves in this world. You know? What about right. your secrets? Yeah. Well, you know, like, how about you put up some of those, write your memoir first? Uh, you know what I mean? No, uh, absolutely. So, so, so yeah. Uh, right, that's the situation. But I, I do, you know, uh, um, their Baldwin's work as it stands in the public right now is in pretty good shape. We've got three really, really high quality volumes of his work with the, with the American library, library of America. 
you know, uh, collected essays, early novels and stories, and later novels. We got The Cross of Redemption, which is a smaller uh, collection of, of pieces of his work, which was never available in any other book. And those four volumes, I mean, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of James Baldwin in there to be experienced and countered and, you know, and, and um, reckoned with. Mm-hmm. So we're in, we're in pretty good shape when it comes to that. But, you know, um, we're all human, man. We always want more. Right, absolutely. And, and Baldwin's a person who, who really is able to give more. Yes. And um, I do think that the version of him that exists in, in those documents that I studied and worked with under, under capable curation, you know, um, for example, and for just one example, as was the case in my own work with that material, I do think that that has a kind of profound impact to make in people's lives who are willing and driven by needs to travel with it. I do think that's true. And I hope, um, I hope it can, I hope it can be part of the public, part of the world's experience at some point. Mm-hmm. ASAP. As I said earlier, we'll have the second half of the interview with Dr. Ed Pavlik next week. Want to get to the songs of the week and the quote of the week. First song of the week is a new one by Mariah Carey featuring Lauren Hill. It's called Save the Day. And it is from the upcoming album entitled Rarities to be released on October 2nd by Mariah Carey. The second song of the week is Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud by James Brown, originally released on his 1968 Christmas album, A Soulful Christmas, and was released again the following year on the album titled After the Song. The Baldwin quote of the week comes from Nobody Knows My Name, More Notes of a Native Son, published in 1961, and it's this. Any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it. The loss of all that gave one an identity, the end of safety. And a reminder, you can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins.america at gmail.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. And please leave a five-star rating. Those are so important to the show. I want to thank again Dr. Ed Pavlik for joining me this week. He'll be with me again next week. And until I talk to you guys next week, I hope you all stay safe. Love each other. Love yourself. Peace.